Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the top 10 reasons to be a Christian. Now, you may have noticed we already have a top 10 episode about why to be Catholic and yet another one about why to be a theist, so why to believe in God. So after this, you have a handy set that you can pass along to all of your friends to bring them into the fullness of the faith. Though I would suggest a few supplementary resources, I really hope they don't just listen to me. Um, speaking of listening to me, more people are doing exactly that. The podcast is growing, and I have you guys to thank, the listeners. You must be sharing it, so that's fantastic. Keep it up. We definitely appreciate that. We also appreciate mailbag questions, of which we are getting quite low, so send those in if you can at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. We also want to hear any comments, any hate mail, anything you have to say, and any suggestions for future episodes or future guests. We definitely um, like to have those. It helps me fill out the schedule because sometimes I blank out and think, hmm, who else could I possibly have on? Maybe I should just keep repeating the ones that I had because they're all great. Well, without any further ado, we have very much to get into. Let's start with reason number one. Seems like a good spot. Here it is. We worship the God of classical theism. This should really be your very first stop if you are thinking about which religion you need to be a part of. Well, you first need to figure out the question of God, and of course that other episode I referenced will help you. So with this criteria, we have a couple options, and not just Christianity. One, obviously, well, Christianity, and bingo, if you chose that one, it's the right one. We have nine other reasons for that. The other one is Judaism. They worship the God of classical theism. Um, and don't get me wrong, Judaism is great. I actually see it as an extension of Christianity into the past. Now, after Christianity began, the true religion became Christianity, not Judaism, because of the coming of the Messiah. But everything prior to the Messiah in Judaism is part of our Christian religion. Um, so Judaism is great. We like it. Um, but you do have to settle the Jesus question if you are interested in this one. And I hope we'll put out a few points about how you can settle that. Islam, that's another option. They worship the god of, of classical theism. But there's a few problems with this one. One of which is they don't have any miracles to vindicate their claims. Now you might think, oh, come on, and you guys do. Um, yeah, we do. <laughs> and here's the funny thing. Um, although it's commonly perceived that ancient people would just believe in any miracle possible. I mean, you, you could just go back and pull quarters out of their ears and be believed to be a deity. That's really not true. In fact, at the time that Islam was getting started, there were people who confronted Muhammad and said, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember how the Christians had all those miracles, particularly like the resurrection or some of the miracles of the saints or whenever they come into a new area to evangelize, God seems to uh, have miracles which vindicate what they're saying. You know how there's that, Muhammad? And um, you know how the Jews had miracles, how other countries were kind of afraid of them because God fought against the Egyptians and the Philistines and other groups? Yeah, yeah the Jews had miracles, and we were all like, yeah, weird, whatever, but they do have miracles. Where are your miracles, Mohammed? <clears throat> Can you do one for us? Uh, no, you can't. So contemporary evidence shows that he wasn't doing miracles, and these are the same people, pretty much, you know, they're Middle Eastern in general, um, prior to modernity, who were evaluating his claims. 
Say what you will about Christianity, but I think there's very strong evidence, um, and not just scriptural, that it was believed that there were Christian miracles and that it was believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. I mean, when we see the scribes and Pharisees um, responding to Jesus, they don't say, I think he fooled us. They say, I don't know. That was a miracle. Maybe it was Satan. So there's not much denying that there is a miracle, though there could be denying that the source was, was God. But nevertheless, that tells us that they believe something miraculous happened. Islam, we don't have that contemporary evidence. So this is, this is a big point, I think, that, that people commonly skim over, that the genesis of a religion should come with some type of stamp of approval from God. And uh, Islam did not. Um, I'll go on to say, and I don't think I mentioned this in the Top 10 Christianity episode, is that at the time of the Reformation, it was believed that there should be miracles in the Protestant world to vindicate their claims that they ought to break from the historic Catholic Church. But they weren't. So to this day, in many um, Protestant denominations, they deny that miracles were possible past the age of the apostles, precisely to kind of paper over the difficulties of not having God's stamp of approval at the time of the Reformation. But I digress. A few other reasons why you shouldn't opt for Islam is because through much, I don't know, most of their history, um, they were the bad guys and they bore some pretty terrible fruit. So to this day, there's a huge amount of sex slavery there. And that's not new. In fact, most of the time with the Ottoman Empire, that was indeed an Islamic empire, they had slaving groups that were trying to get into the, the Christian West and would take kids and bring them back and sell them. That, that's disgusting. That's awful. Um, we also don't like how they spread their religion through violence. People will say that Christianity did that. Well, I wouldn't be so quick with that. If you look at the details of how much of Christianity spread, it was through peaceful missionary activity. It, not so much just forcing people to become Christian by the sword, though, I don't know, maybe that may have happened a few ways, but that doesn't explain the spread of Christianity. But it does explain the spread of Islam. Muhammad has been credibly described as a warlord. I don't think anybody's describing Jesus or the apostles as warlords. I don't think that we should, we should take seriously a religion that is spread simply through force and when it remakes the culture, seems to make it in a way that we all would universally dislike. Also, like the question of Judaism, we still have to settle the Jesus question, which we'll get to. Also, the rest of the Bible is supposedly affirmed. So the Quran says that the Bible is some sort of inspired text. Um, but here's the thing. It doesn't seem to be in any type of continuity with the Quran. Now, Christianity make, makes a claim that the Old Testament, in addition to the New, is inspired and is part of our canon. But it's very different when Christians go back to the Old Testament. We find that it is in continuity with the New Testament. But with this additional piece of revelation, so-called revelation of the Quran, it's in discontinuity with what came before. So it seems to be a break with that which it supposedly affirms. So that's a big problem. All right, next option. So we got Judaism, Christianity, Islam. You could also follow some type of Greek philosophical tradition because they too had some type of classical theism, though at times confused. 
Well, here's the thing. That's cool and all, and I'm all for you studying Greek philosophy. Like, don't let me stop you there. But if it's true, then um, where is the revelation? This is the reason side, and we fully support that. But even the, those in the Greek philosophical schools believed that the god or gods somehow spoke to them. Now, sometimes that would be through diviners or the, um, oh, what do you call them? That guy with the victory is found in walls of wood. Probably not a guy, probably a priestess. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. The Oracle of Delphi. There you go. So it could be oracles. It could be the muse. It could be the poets. But if you take seriously the claims of Greek philosophy and the classical theism therein, then you should be looking for revelation, some source of revelation. I don't suspect that you believe that the Greek pantheon would be the be-all, end-all. And again, Plato and Aristotle didn't think so either. They were actually um, accused of being atheists because they didn't believe in any of those gods, and they only really believed in the one, the god of classical theism. So the claims of revelation in this system are ones which are incompatible with the reason that probably drew you to pick this option if you did. So why don't you just hang on to the reasonable parts of Greek philosophy reject the revelation parts, and start your quest again looking for what revelation might fit the god of classical theism. And that kind of just brings you back to the previous three options. But, for the sake of completeness, should you consider the Eastern religions? Well, here's a couple problems. One is, many of them don't really have a god figure. I suppose some of them do, but not entirely. If you're thinking of some... Um, uh, Hindu gods, well, some of that's actually an infusion of Catholicism hundreds of years prior because of the, um, the, uh, the Apostle Thomas who went to India. So that one circles you back to the previous options. If you're thinking about Confucianism, Buddhism, yeah, they don't really have a god in that system, though I'm far from an expert. Also, there seems to be some confusion on moral realism, and at many times... I'd be tempted to call these not really religions, but instead philosophies kind of like Stoicism in the Western tradition. And like Stoicism, I think you should take what's good from them, um, leave out what's bad, and certainly not consider any of these as the, the end-all be-all of how you should order your life of worship. All right, so wrapping up, Choose the God of Classical Theism for all of the reasons in the other podcast. Um, anything less than that is an alien or a demon or an angel or something like that, right? That's what we would call a being which exists in reality, isn't God, isn't us, is intelligent, and is orders of magnitude more powerful. It, I don't know. If that thing existed, if Zeus existed, for example, I would say he'd be best classified as an alien. Um, yeah. In that respect, I suppose the Marvel movies get stuff right. Thor and Loki are aliens. So there you go. Don't worship them. Number two reason why you should be a Christian is that Christianity makes sense of, well, Christianity, obviously, so it's internally consistent. But Christianity also makes sense of Judaism. It makes sense of natural law religion. It makes sense of other spiritual traditions. And it even makes sense of the rise and structure of Islam. So any Christian who's studied scripture in depth 
knows that the mysterious events of the Jewish faith, their practices, sacrifices, laws, writings, histories, and prophecies, all are unlocked by understanding the identity of Christ and his work on earth. Also, these Jewish texts prophesy Christ and the Messianic Age. I have written something about the Messianic Age, and depending on how long this goes, I might read it at the end. But my contention is that the Messianic Age was far from being a disappointment. In fact, living in this new age where the Messiah has already come is super awesome, and we don't um, give it near enough credit. We just take it all for granted. So I'll try to finish up with this and uh, slide that document in at the end of this episode, because I think it's cool. All right. So let's talk about natural law religion and how exactly Christianity makes sense of this. So we would say Christianity makes sense of Judaism because it includes all of Judaism and it really clarifies a lot of weird stuff that was happening in the Old Testament. If you have a specific thing about that, ask me. I will answer and I'll answer on the air. But we're going to have to leave it there. So natural law religion has the following qualities. One, it recognizes a God, some type of God. It also recognizes a real moral law, which is binding on rational agents. And subsequently, because we transgress it, because that's what we do, it acknowledges some type of sin that each person has. Now, the solution to this in just natural law religion is a priesthood of some type, some privileged class, with some type of sacrifice and on an altar. Most often, they also have some type of understanding of a final judgment and an afterlife. Now, I think this is curious in and of itself, and it shows a lot of support for, for religion in general. That is just so ubiquitous and baked into who we are as, as people. You can, go to, you can go to Hawaii, and you can find ancient altars where priests were sacrificing um, to atone for some type of sin. You can look at the Mayans and the Aztecs. You can look at Middle Eastern areas. Even uh, China and India also has this type of um, natural law religion. It's just baked into who we are. You can go back pretty much as far as you like, and there's evidence of a belief in an afterlife by burying people with things that they would be believed to need for, um, in, need in, in the life to come. But Christianity clarifies what exactly these things mean, seems to remove a lot of the superstition around it, and it instead creates a systematic theology in which the reality of these extraordinarily strong intuitions are embedded. So Christianity makes sense of the existence of Islam also, because we see that Muhammad was drawing from Christianity to make his new faith. And by the way, he did a very poor job of this. His understanding of Christianity was that the Trinity was made up of the Father, Son, and strangely, the Virgin Mary. Oops. <laughs> so Islamic ideas are made sense of in light of a person drawing from the resources directly around him, but in an ignorant way, and using this only to gain power and influence. So there you go. The religions um, that get God right are the ones that we should be investigating. Uh, Judaism does, but it seems to be explained by um, Christianity even better than it's explained by itself. Islam seems to be explained by simply a misunderstanding of Christianity and some folk religion in the area. Um, Natural law religion is explained in the context of natural 
uh, human nature, which is acknowledged in Christianity. And I think it's clarified substantially what it means to have sin, what it means to have a moral law, who exactly this God is, um, and what a priesthood would look like that would ultimately um, fulfill the need of uh, clearing mankind of this debt to an infinite deity. I know there's more things that I should have gone into there, but we press on because we're only up to number three. Number three is Jesus. Now, I know, probably should have been number one, but in a sense, because we're talking about Christianity in general, he's all of the numbers. So, check out the podcast on the natural law, and you can see more about my moral realism argument. Um, It's pretty brief there, but um, yeah, I think it's in a very contemporary context. And uh, now that you're back from listening to that, you know that we have sinned against an infinite God. And now we have a question. If we've done such a thing, is it possible for us to repay that debt? Well, in short, no. And the reason for this is because, well, God is infinite and we're finite. And let me give you a little bit of an example of of why these things matter. Let's say you go out into nature and you find a tree. And you get mad and you punch the tree. So you just, I don't know, try to injure or injure or insult or in some way make the tree upset. Have you done any real evil? I would say no, not really. You're kind of mean to the tree, but whatever. Now, what if you take a few steps more and you find a horse and you do the same thing? You decide, I'm going to punch the horse. Well, you're kind of a jerk. Like, I mean, don't do that. You can't be mean to animals and just punching horses. Like, what kind of person does that? So that's worse, right? We've gone up the chain of being one rung from plant to animal, and things just got worse. Again, same action, but because you're assaulting something objectively higher, now your sin is objectively greater. So now you turn and you find a a random guy. Maybe he's laughing at you because you just punched a tree and a horse. So now you decide to punch him. Well, this is really bad now. I mean, in most jurisdictions, this is assault and battery, right? You'd be thrown in jail for such a thing. You just unprovoked attacked this random guy. You punched him in the face. Now, let's go up not an entire rung, but within this, uh, this same uh, species. We'll find, I don't know, the Queen of England after this. Still a person, right? But a person of um, higher earthly dignity than the random dude that you punched. Let's say you punch the Queen of England. This is, by the way, certainly not recommended. Well, that's actually that's actually assault of a sitting monarch. You, in a sense, have assaulted all of Britain when you do that. It's not just the one guy that you've made mad. You've made the entire world mad, most likely. Certainly all of, all of Britain. So the penalty for this would likely be death. Assault of a monarch is the penalty of death. But again, same action for the tree, the horse, the random guy, and the queen. Now, what if we went infinitely higher than the queen and you assaulted God? So you sought to harm, you can't, but you sought to harm God through your sin. Well, we would say that that's an infinite debt that you owe because the subject of your sin is is infinite in nature. So go and listen to the hell episode for more of an explanation of this. I kind of give a, a similar setup. I don't think I have any tree punching, but yeah, still good. 
Now, in light of all this, Jesus becomes expected. So given the reality of God, which we already have on the table, the reality of the moral law, which I offered another podcast, but I think most people accept some type of moral realism, even if they don't really admit it. And given the gravity of our sin, which we briefly covered, the prior probability of God's incarnation, I think, is actually pretty high. So, as would his his payment of sin through death and the defeat of death and sin through a resurrection. So, all of those things become way more likely when we have these previous things in place. So, how is this? Why would this be? Well, because we would need to pay an infinite debt um, with an infinite act of love. But we, by definition, can't do that because we're just little tiny finite beings with very small debt-paying powers. So, God would be the only being who could pay an infinite debt. All right, great. Well, how on earth would that accrue to us? Well, God would have to pay this debt somehow unified with mankind so that it credits to mankind's account. And that's exactly what we get in the incarnation. We have God becoming man so that Christ's sacrifice is infinite because he's God and is applied to mankind because he's man. So how do we become a part of that? Well, it's through baptism and the Eucharist. So go back and listen to the Eucharist podcast. And one day I should do a baptism podcast because that seems like a good idea. So there you go. We have a very strong probability of this event happening. And I'll add to that that Jesus prophesies that he will die and rise again, which is, of course, um, the payment of this debt of sin. And then the defeat of sin and the subsequent death. Um, And that would be needed so that, again, we can join into it and then it can be efficacious for us. Now, I would invite you to, and boy, I've put a lot of podcast episodes on your list to listen to, um, to listen to the one on testimony. I think it's called, Why Should I Believe You? And we take the case of the resurrection as a little bit of a case study in evaluating testimony evidence. But a few of the things we do there is we ask the questions, Does the witness, which is telling me something, have the epistemic vantage point to know the truth? And let's evaluate again um, the case of the resurrection. So sure, we have high prior probability that we would have such an event. Jesus prophesies it. Now, do the people who tell us that it actually happened have the vantage point to know that it did indeed happen? Well, I would claim yeah. All that we need to substantiate the resurrection is that they saw him die. Um, And yes, we have witnesses there. We have his mother. We have the other Mary. We have John. Um, We have at least Peter followed along enough to see that the the events were beginning to take place. Um, we, We have the people who saw the body after he was crucified. So they confirmed that he indeed died. Um, And then we have him resurrected, right? That's all we need. So see him dead, see him alive. Now, Paul talks about 500 witnesses who were available for a confirmation on exactly this fact. So that's a piece of the puzzle. Also, we have Paul who had some vision of a resurrected Christ, which caused him to go from not believing and in fact killing Christians to believing and uh, becoming an apostle. We have the 12 who say that they did eat and drink with Jesus. So if that were true, that would certainly be the type of um, 
evidence we would need to substantiate a physically resurrected Christ, eating and drinking with him, that should do the trick. Um, so there you go. So we do have people who were in the points to be able to collaborate um, these facts. But do they have the incentives to tell the truth or were they incentivized to lie? Well, some of them actually died as martyrs. Now, not all of them, um, but we do have strong evidence that it wasn't exactly a great thing to be a Christian, especially early on. Uh, very quickly, we had a lot of persecution. Um, Paul would be a great example of a person who was persecuting the early church. So it seems that the incentives were actually for them to not preach the resurrection, to give up the burgeoning Christian faith. So I would say their incentives were actually against them, um, them uh, preaching the resurrection. And if they acted against their own interest, well, although that doesn't prove that it was true, it does prove that they were sincere. And now we have two pieces. They could have known. And when they give their testimony, they are sincere. So the last thing we need to know is if they could tell the truth, which is our first question, epistemic vantage point, and they were to tell the truth, which is our question of incentives, and we see that they're acting against their own interests, so that would be very high evidence that they are indeed sincere, then would it be told without distortion? And if so, what kind of distortion would there be? Well, I would say if anything, um, they would they would have given their prior commitments thought that the resurrection might be spiritual or might be at the end of time. Um, the fact that, that they said that there is a bodily resurrection actually breaks with a lot of their priors. And I don't see a good explanation of why they would, they would break out of this unless there was actually something so compelling that, that they would be basically forced to do so. Now, for more apologetics on the resurrection, um, Trent Horn had a good debate. Listen to that. There are plenty of other ones. That's not my specialty, for sure. Um, but I think there's very, very strong evidence for this. There's the minimal facts approach, which I think is good, kind of the way that I went about here, just talking about um, they saw him dead, they saw him alive. Um, there's a couple other ways to go about it, which I think are valuable also. Um, but uh, if we say that the resurrection happened, I think this really narrows down our options even further. So if we have the God of classical theism that reduces us basically down to the big three monotheistic religions, and now if we have an actual resu resurrection, well, Judaism is off the table. It means that it was just um, fulfilled with the Messiah and turns into Christianity. And if we believe the things that Jesus said, if we actually believe his message, which I think would be a pretty good idea if, you know, the guy prophesied his own resurrection and then did it, then I think Islam is off the table because I see large incompatibilities with not just the teaching of Jesus, but the teaching of the apostles that he gave authority to and the teaching of the church that Christ established. Um, say nothing of the incongruities with the Old Testament. So there you go. The resurrection of Jesus takes off the table the other options. All right. And if God is here, which is what the incarnation um, would 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 suggest that God has come among us, then yeah, grab all your Greek philosophy stuff um, that we have through reason. And uh, awesome, now we have revelation, but not one that's through a poet or, um, you know, from some dude in a cave who's, who's speaking in some strange way. We have revelation from God become man. Um, 
so yeah, if you're one of the people who took option number four, then um, still jump into Christianity. While we're on the subject of miracles, number four is we have miracles. Now, evidence from ancient sources acknowledged that the Jews had miracles. So again, Judaism is, from this point in the podcast at least, treated as um, part of the Christian story um, when it is prior to the resurrection of Christ, since that, in fact, is the Christian claim. Now, we have other um, people like the Philistines, like the Egyptians, seem to indicate that they believed that there were miracles that happened with the Jews. So it's not just the Jewish texts, which I think are good evidence. We seem to have some other stuff too. So that's very interesting that we had miracles um, in the prior covenant. Also, Christianity has miracles. Um, Some of them are very strongly supported. For instance, the resurrection, and though I'm not an expert on this one either, um, the miracle at Fatima is well reported and is much more modern. So for people who have some type of historical snobbery, maybe the miracle at Fatima is something that you should investigate. Some of the Eucharistic miracles are also quite interesting. And the Shroud of Tehran, I think, is one that we should be looking into also. Though there's some reasons for or against that one. Remember, it's hard to know if a miracle happened, so we should expect that there will be false positives. Like, Of course they are. We have to make a filter for miracles. And if we make the holes in the filter too small, well, then we'll block out legitimate miracles. And if we make the holes in the filter too big, well, then we might let in things which aren't necessarily true. So this is kind of a matter of prudence, where we set the bar, what kind of filter we use. But we should expect that if we're going to be at least reasonably open-minded, there will be some false positives, like, welcome to the way the world works. Um, Nevertheless, even if one of these is true, that in the context of Christianity or Judaism, we have miraculous occurrences that seem to be divine, then this is unbelievably strong evidence for the Judeo-Christian God. Um, So, yeah, we don't need many miracles to make this a a good reason to believe in Christianity. Um, I mentioned earlier that contemporaries to Muhammad believed in Jewish and Christian miracles, even when they weren't Christians or Jews, yet they did not believe in any Islamic miracles because there were none. Well, some apologists say that that he split the moon, but, well, I don't want to, you know, uh, throw shade on other people's religions, but I just don't think that's too likely, and I don't think you think so either. So we're not going to give that one too much time. Also, on the topic of miracles, go around and ask a bunch of Catholic Christians if they've ever seen a miracle. Now, don't ask the ones which are really emotional and misty-eyed. I'm sure they'll give you some long, drawn-out story about something which might not be miraculous at all. But go find a good, smart, rational one, ask that person, and I think you'll be surprised. Miracles are much more common than you would think. Um, Other religions may have miracles, that's possible, Um, but they tend to have lower quality evidence and they seem to be less frequent, though I haven't done some giant systematic study But given Christianity and the fact that we acknowledge natural law religion, and we would say that in some um, respects this this natural law religion is baked into other religions, even if, you know, they're not entirely true, 
then Christianity predicts that we would have some amount of miraculous activity in other places. And that's what we seem to see. But we would definitely expect that we would have the most, the strongest, and the most attested ones in Christianity. And I think that's what we find. All right. Number five. If Christianity was true, then the Christian God created the universe. But if he created the universe, then Christianity would obviously be functioning best in that universe. And I would say Christianity does function best in our universe. And therefore, we do have some strong evidence that Christianity is true, right? So the match between um, acting as a Christian and the way the universe works shows that there's some compatibility with reality. So let me name just a few ways that Christianity is compatible with reality. One, um, science. It's out of the Christian culture that we get modern science. And there's a variety of reasons, and many of them are philosophical. And when I list these, you'll think, uh, yeah, duh, of course. Doesn't everybody believe that? And the answer is yes. And uh, you're welcome, Christianity. Thanks for making everybody believe these. This was not historically true. And uh, these things aren't just facts that we're born with. Instead, they're baked into a culture that came out of Christendom. So... One of those things is that we have um, real natures that we can observe. So an electron, for example, is the same in a lab as it is in a distant galaxy because natures are, um, are, 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 are well, man, I'm going to get really metaphysical, but I'm going to have to skip that. Just, we'll leave it at this. Facts about things, given their nature, are generalizable because there's something immaterial about them that means that anywhere in a material universe, um, whatever about them, which we, we would call their nature, can ground the fact universally. If that made any sense, don't know if it did. Anyways, math and other logical fields are true, and this truth maps onto the created order. Um, that's pretty wild, guys. The idea that you could just make a number line, and then you can perform a bunch of logical operations on it, and then you can create complex mathematical models. And then it could, I don't know, predict the existence of black holes. And then we could find black holes. And all of this, of course, happened. Um, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Now, that makes sense with the Christian doctrine of the Logos, that the intelligence and intelligibility of the universe um, created all things, right? So uh, Jesus is called the Logos. That's a Greek philosophical uh, concept that's being referenced, though it's also referenced in Scripture, um, the Deuterocanonical book specifically, which incorporated a lot of that uh, Greek wisdom into the Jewish faith at the time where they were heavily Hellenized. Anyways, so this Logos, the intelligence, intelligibility, created all things. John, in his famous prologue, identifies the Logos with Jesus. Um, so we're saying that God has intelligibility, creative power, internal to himself as part of who he is. So it's no surprise that when he creates, things make sense and they function in accord with logic and reason. All right. Next is, we believe that our minds actually perceive reality. Now, if you're not familiar with a lot of kind of in-the-weeds philosophical stuff, you might think, well, that's a dumb point. 
doesn't everybody think that we perceive reality? Sadly, no. But <laughs> we in the Christian West, we do. And that is a prerequisite for science. Also, we don't believe that the universe is God. We're not any flavor of pantheists. So we don't think the universe just changes at a whim, right? So if Poseidon just controls the sea, then how can we study ocean currents? It's actually a personality. It's not some type of natural process. So the idea that God is rational and ordered and creates a rational, ordered universe that is not him, that has a nature that operates reliably with real causal powers, that understanding is a prerequisite for science. That's something that comes out of Christianity and shows that the Christian worldview does indeed match with what we find. Um, finally, I would say that on the subject of faith and science in general, Christianity is not just necessary for the launch of science, as I've been discussing earlier, and therefore compatibility with the way the world actually is, but they created the university system. That was the church, specifically the Catholic church. And we find that priests and other religious people are the fathers of whole fields of sciences. For instance, um, uh, Mendel with genetics or um, uh, George Lemaitre with the Big Bang Theory. And I'm sure there's many, many more um, outside of the Catholic tradition. We have Isaac Newton, a deeply, deeply religious man, invented calculus and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, Blaise Pascal, he did some stats and math and all sorts of things. So there you go. Um, reasons that we know that the uh, Christianity matches the universe is because out of Christianity comes science, and science matches the universe. Also, out of the Judeo-Christian system, we get economics. So the Dominicans kind of invented economics. And, um, well, that's not entirely true, but they started to make it... Um, more systematic. Economics, properly speaking, is a branch of moral philosophy, which shocks and appalls many people. Um, but it's the Judeo-Christian worldview that tells us things about economics. And then when we put these economics into effect, we find that they work in the universe, showing that Christianity has yet another means of matching the way the universe actually is. Let me just give you a few ways that um, the Judeo-Christian tradition influences economics. One, it protects private property. I mean, that's literally one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. You, you can't steal unless we're first acknowledging that man has a right to private property. Um, I wish I could get into that more. Of course, there's times when um, this is not absolute, but nevertheless, we do acknowledge that man um, can own things, and that's not always acknowledged. But is in our tradition. Also, um, inside of uh, particularly the Old Testament, we find all sorts of good things. One, there's a regulation of money. Um, we also have strong condemnations of the debasement of currency. Now, that's a contemporary issue. In fact, I believe that's one of the sins which cries out for redress. It says that when your money corrodes, in other words, it's been debased, then uh, that's a cry to heaven. I'm pretty sure. Go check that verse. Also, we have the correction of debt deflation in the harvest cycle, which I'll totally get into in another episode because it's cool. Um, so we're addressing um, certain economic issues, and we're doing it um, kind of from a theological, scriptural framework, but again, matches reality. 
We also have the limiting of signage benefits and the directing of labor into the real economy. Also, we have a preference for frugality and saving um, throughout Scripture, an encouragement for entrepreneurial activity. We see that in some of Jesus' parables, a celebration of trade. Just look at the way that the, the temple was produced, for example. The importance of hard work. I think that's, um, that's baked into all sorts of stuff. Just ask the Puritans. They'll find it for you. The importance of specialization, right? The different talents that people have. Um, we also have intelligent social programs, which are outlined. Uh, for instance, the gleaning of the edges of fields is a type of workfare, not necessarily welfare, but workfare, whereby we have a matching of those with the lowest opportunity cost with the harvesting of sections of, uh, of fields, which have the highest marginal cost of production. So good job, Bible. Nailed it again. Um, we also have the Christian tradition um, gives birth to human rights and a correct arrangement of society that matches the way that we believe the universe is and the way that society ought to be. For instance, we have through scripture the regulation and then the elimination of slavery later on by Christianity. We have the equality of races and people. We have the equal dignity amongst men and women. We even have um, women have a variety of rights throughout the scripture that pretty much nobody else had at that time and a variety of protections that um, commonly get glossed over that people totally don't understand, some of which I might address in a podcast. Um, yeah, some of the laws about like ritual purity and things, yeah, people totally misunderstand it. It's like, oh, Bible thinks women are sinful for whatever reason. It's like, no, you totally don't get that. But I digress. We have many more points. Let's keep going. Um, we also have labor protections for servants, and we have days off, for instance, the Sabbath. Just war theory comes out of Christianity, as does the doctrine of subsidiarity. The Inquisition, which everybody busts on, was actually the genesis of a ton of uh, legal theory um, and trial procedure, which, um, uh, yeah, it continues to this day. I mean, that plus some Roman jurisprudence is the basis of much of... Uh, um, the law that we have today. So there you go. All of those good things we like, that we believe are true, that we believe are in line with the way things ought to be, and or, especially in the case of science, are in line with the way that things are just by their nature, all are, um, are somehow from the Christian and Judeo-Christian tradition. Also, I'd say that there's a match to um, the reality of things when we apply Christianity to the actions in our individual lives. For instance, if you look at drug and uh, alcohol um, addiction centers, it looks a lot like the, um, the Christian prescription. For instance, the AA program, Alcoholics Anonymous, was heavily Catholic influenced, might have even been started by a Catholic, don't remember. But anyways, it re recognizes a higher power, the importance of repentance, community, um, all those things are, are very much baked into the uh, um, Christian tradition. We also see that Christianity matches the way reality is because when Christians practice their Christianity, well, statistically speaking, we are happier and we tend to live longer. In fact, when Christians, specifically Catholics, who have a valid sacramental marriage and attend Mass weekly, um, get married, they have only a 2% divorce rate. So... All of this stuff just seems to work. Um, and I'm sure I could come up with more examples if you really like. 
Number six, in Christianity, you don't need to leave your brain at the door. Um, we have theology and philosophy, which are incredibly cool areas of study. We have unbelievable geniuses who, um, who worked on these issues. For instance, Thomas Aquinas, uh, he is not a man who left his brain at the door. We have the history and prevalence of Christian science. Um, these people did not see any incompatibility with uh, faith and reason. They didn't think that their minds were being closed off by their Christian faith. Instead, they thought it was being opened up. And uh, the excitement of being able to explore God's created order, well, well, that's what impelled them into all of their, their pursuits. That's what fueled their curiosity. Art and culture... Uh, beauty is valued in the in the Christian tradition. Uh, so you don't need to leave your aesthetic senses at the door either. And although you are asked to believe things which are difficult to believe and to understand by reason, I wouldn't say they're contrary to reason. Um, certainly your alternatives, for instance, embracing secular dogma, well, those things have real uh, contradictions and are, are much more problematic. Look no further than um, the insistence that men and women are the same thing. Well, that's completely in, in, that's completely false. Um, and of course, go back to the transgenderism episode if you want more details about that. All right, quick coffee break, and then we're going to hit number seven, which is the Bible. All right, listeners, I'm back and better than ever. The Bible, number seven. I would say this is yet another good reason to be Christian because this holy book, I think, is better than other people's holy books. Now, I haven't read a ton of other people's holy books, but I have read some, and I got to say, we got something pretty unbelievably awesome here. One, chock full of wisdom. Two, you can study it nearly endlessly and find all sorts of connections and uh, typologies, uh, foreshadowing, um, symbolism, stuff that is simply incredible. And I've read plenty of other books, and nothing is constructed like the Bible. Nothing has this type of bottomless depth like the Bible does. Now, just a surface-level read, you might not catch it, but you can dig as much as you like and keep on pulling out gold. I'd also say that the Bible has this spooky ability to speak into people's lives. If you haven't experienced this, um, go and grab a Christian and say, hey, have you ever had the Bible speak into your life in a really specific, almost spooky way? And they're going to say, yes, it happens quite frequently. And uh, I don't think that could be replicated with other books. Um, another thing is, just as, as something that, that you may or may not have in your house or apartment, it's really cool. Just, if I described the Bible to you, and you didn't know I was describing the Bible, you would be, you'd be blown away. Hey, I found this ancient text. It's a religious text. Now, we were able to translate it from this ancient language. Now, it's in parts maybe 3,000 years old, and it contains stories which are even older of a people who are long past. Uh, stories of battles, miracles, <clears throat> uh, battles of priest against priest, 
prophecies that reach all the way to today's age. Do you want to read it? Well, the answer is, of course you want to read it. That sounds so cool. But because the Bible is so prevalent, it's so ordinary in many of our cultures, it's lost some of this, I don't know, lost some of the magic. I think that if I translated some hieroglyphics from 3,000 years ago um, that were written by the high priest of of an Egyptian cult of some type, people would be very interested in what it says. For instance, there's the Egyptian Book of the Dead. People are just fascinated by this. Um, You should be equally fascinated by the Bible. We have the Bible. That's very cool. Um, It has a remarkably consistent message. That's another point I want to put out there. It reads almost as if it is one book. It is not. It is 73 of them, written by numerous authors over thousands of years in different languages from different cultures. And yet, I can trace Eucharistic doctrines through almost every single book of the Bible. I can show you baptism from Genesis all the way out to Revelation. I can show you Jesus in every single book there is. I can show you prophecies which sync with other parts of Scripture are are fulfilled um, by the witnesses of those times later on. The the overall coherence of the message is truly remarkable given the diversity of the authors and times and traditions. So that's, that's a point in Christianity's favor, for sure. Number eight, prayer and the sacraments actually work. Um, the sacrament of confession is amazing. So I'm a Catholic convert, so I went most of my life without this. So you just pray to God and say, hey, forgive me for this sin, that sin, etc. Yeah, that is not the same as Catholic confession. There is real grace that's given to you that makes not sinning like noticeably, obviously easier than it was before. Um, baptism. That's another sacrament that I can tell the difference. In fact, I, I used to bartend at a local brewery. And in conversations with people on topics of religion, I could almost always guess, like very accurately, who was baptized and who wasn't baptized. I can, I can tell when you're in conversation. Things click with baptized people that don't with unbaptized people. There's an actual grace for understanding the truth, um, for living a holy life, which is present in that sacrament. And yes, prayers um, prayers have answers, and answered prayer is another thing that you will find. And there are plenty of stories amongst Christians of answered prayers, and pretty incredible ones, too. Also, I know, I mentioned miracles, I mentioned prayers, I've mentioned asking Christians about their experiences of these things. I'm sure if you do, you could doubt the individual story or whatever you're told in that particular case, find a way that maybe it could have failed However, don't think for a second that that somehow makes you more rational to try to just destroy some some worldview as if knocking somebody's blocks over was as good as building a tower yourself. All that tells me is when people systematically doubt every individual point and don't take it as a whole is that they just have no idea how probability stacks up. So you only need one miracle to vindicate a claim because, you know, miracles are miracles. Um, 
if we indeed have a deity that's answering prayers in a particular religious context, with just one or two of those answered prayers, <laughs> I mean, that's incredible evidence, even if other ones are false. So it doesn't necessarily detract from the thesis if there are, are false positives. Um, but real positives are incredibly persuasive. So if you want to know how um, multiple lines of independent evidence actually stack, I think I addressed that a little bit in the theism episode. So there you go. Just because you can doubt a story doesn't mean you can doubt the sum of stories. It's not how it works. Also, on this subject in general, I'm going to appeal to an internal witness, not necessarily shareable, but things witnessed through the eyes of faith. Now, there's times that people know that Christianity is true. People know that God is real. People know that Catholicism is the, is the, uh, the fullness of, um, of uh, what would Christ wish for us um, in religious context. A strange way to describe it. Anyways, babbling at this point in the episode. Anyways, I like to give the example of if you were tried for murder, but you didn't do it. And it just turned out that by accident, you had touched the murder weapon. You were there at the scene of the crime, like at about the right time. That you had gotten in a fight with the person earlier. That all of the evidence looks against you. You can be in an epistemic vantage point to know for a fact that you did not murder that people. Even if you cannot prove that to other people. So there's certain types of evidence that are not shareable. And that's totally normal. So if you think, well, I'm a Christian just because I literally know this is true. I have evidence that is not necessarily persuasive to others, but is the type of evidence that is persuasive to me and for good reason, then you can be entirely rational in holding to this, just like somebody can maintain their innocence, even though a trial may find them guilty in light of the evidence that is only um, available to the public. All right, so there's that too. Which brings us to number nine, Pascal's Wager. People bust on Pascal's Wager, but I don't think you should. Other people back it down to, well, you should only use this if you're really 50-50. I don't think so. I think that it's an excellent point to say that given the risk of, uh, of going to hell and giving the reward of going to heaven, one ought to live in accord with whatever lowers the risk of the bad thing and raises the probability of the good thing happening. And to whatever extent one can do this. Um, I mean, I think of investments, for example. If you're making a bet on an investment, you certainly want to avoid the risk of total loss and you want to maximize the probability of an outrageously large return. Of course you do. And you might even make bets on things that you don't think will necessarily pan out, but the risk-weighted rate of return might still be very high. So I think that the, the risk-weighted rate of return for Christianity is very, very high. And for most other religions, I, I don't think it's quite that high. Um, and I know I'm applying Pascal's wager to Christianity and not just to God, which is its native context, but I think it, it transfers quite nicely. The probability of Islam being true, I think, is very low. Um, 
same with um, same with many Eastern religions, and certainly same with um, like the Norse religion or the Greek pantheon. Um, not just for reasons of classical theism, but just look at the internal coherence of Christianity and the systematic theology that we can have versus those rival systems. One seems to be much more rationally ordered. One seems to match the evidence that we actually have. And as I talked about in the other points, with regards to science, um, with regards to economics, with regards to the way that it actually plays out in our life, it, it just seems that Christianity matches the way that the universe was actually set up. Um, Boy, that's strong evidence. I don't think you can say the same is true of, of its rivals. So you ought to place your bet on Christianity, even if you're not 100% certain. Now, does this mean you should fake it till you make it, or that belief is just something that you can do through sheer force of will? No, I don't think so. Um, but here's the example I give for this. If you've ever been in a math class, you know that you're just offered things to accept at the beginning, and you kind of have to take what you're being taught on faith. Say, all right, these are numbers. Cool, I believe you. These are some operations you can do with these numbers. Okay, yeah, that sounds fine. Anyways, now we're going to get up to trigonometry and calculus and all the other stuff. And once you get there, once you get advanced enough, you can now turn around, look back on those former things, and you have the tools to prove them. You can now understand those things which are not understandable at first because you went down the road of learning math, of being part of, of this tradition, and now you can see it from the inside and be equipped with the tools to make sense of it all. That is the way that I would apply Pascal's wager. You can't actually evaluate Christianity fairly, purely from the outside. I, for instance, number eight was prayer and sacraments. You have to be initiated into the Catholic Church to receive most of these sacraments, or some of them. And prayer is something which its native context is worship, specifically the worship of the one true church, and mostly in the context of being united with the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. So there are parts, there are things that just... You're, you're going to need to be on the inside to see. Baptism installs the eyes of faith. You're going to need those to understand certain Christian doctrines, but you don't get those until God gives them to you. Just like you're not going to be able to prove certain tenets of math without going through the process of learning it, of practicing it, and then finally turning back and proving some of those theorems um, with what you have come to understand. Um, and I think that's a worthwhile endeavor if you have good reason to believe that it's true. And I think these other points that I've, I've offered are such reasons. All right. Number 10. And this one's different. Here's a question for you. Have you ever seen a ghost? Yeah. Most people say yes. I think the number is like 70, 80% of people respond yes to this question which I think is interesting. Um, if you ever want to start a conversation with somebody and you have nothing else to say, um, that's a really good thing to ask, and it's going to lead you into some pretty cool places. Most people have had some type of experience of the supernatural. Now, not everybody, but the fact that it's so um, widespread at every time in culture, the idea of angels, demons, spirits of the dead, things like that, 
and I may add that when there's um, presumed demonic activity, it seems to be that Christianity has this special efficacy in getting rid of it. And, I might add, that it's not any type of Christianity, but specifically the Catholic Church seems to have the tools at its disposal to get rid of demonic activity, to perform exorcisms, um, to deal with um, uh, deal with that kind of paranormal activity. So that's not going to be persuasive to everybody, but I do think number 10 um, might be persuasive to some people. I think that's I think that's a cool one to bring up. Um, again, Christianity predicts that we would see such things. And guess what? We do see such things. So I think that counts as some evidence in favor of Christianity. Now we're doing decently well on time. So I think I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read that thing, which I told you I was going to read if we had time, um, talking about the Messiah. All right. Kind of on the subject, but kind of not. But nevertheless, here we go. Many religions claim that a Messiah is coming. But how many religions can you name that claim that he actually showed up? More than that, how many of these long-prophesied messiahs made anywhere near the splash as Jesus Christ? So momentous was his coming in the course of human events that we mark all of time in reference to him, either before Christ or Adamos de Bingo. Here we sit in the messianic age that sages long past wished to see. Has it lived up to our expectations? I contend yes. In the strongest sense, it has. Sure, you may feel that today is dull and ordinary, but you are wrong. In fact, nothing could be possibly farther from the truth. To prove my point, we will cover a very, very, very broad sweep of human history and find out what an ordinary human life actually looked like for most humans. Then we will look at the wildest and most extraordinary expectation people had for the Messiah and see if he cuts the proverbial mustard. Are you ready for probably the fastest covering of human history you have ever heard? 300,000 years ago dawns the beginning of the, of the Middle Paleolithic era. Homo sapiens walk the earth in small bands of hunter-gatherers looking for their next meal. Now, if you are one such person, then you are naked, and you will remain so for the next 130,000 years. You, like your siblings, were born stunted. Not that you know that, because everybody is stunted from lack of nutrition. Your brain has developed far past that of your ancestors, yet you would certainly be considered mentally challenged by today's standards. And speaking of your siblings, most of them will die by the age of five. Even if people live that long, the murder rate has been estimated to be as high as 40%. You don't have a home either. Permanent structures won't be found until around 100,000 years ago. In other words, 200,000 years later. So let's jump all the way to the Upper Paleolithic, around 70,000 B.C., Humanity has recently survived being annihilated by a supervolcano that erupted 5,000 years prior. As a result, our numbers have dropped to an estimated 6,000 mating pairs. Fortunately, population bottlenecks like this can draw out recessive genes and actually spur evolution. And this seems to have made us smarter 
and a good thing too, because we had a powerful enemy, the Neanderthals that lived in modern Europe. Homo sapiens attempted to migrate there due to some climatic shifts, and we fought them for thousands of years. And only after some technological advances, we finally prevailed. It was during this time that we created some crude art, created simple musical instruments like flutes and drums. A normal day was better than before, as our brains advanced, our social network expanded to approximately 150 members. Yes, the murder rate was still insanely high, as was the mortality rate among infants and children. Most everybody was stunted by today's standards, and permanent dwellings were quite crude. Medical care included things like drilling a hole in one's head, and food was, well, painfully scarce. And such was the miserable state of man, give or take some minor and fleeting comforts, all the way down to around 8,000 BC when the Ice Age lifted. Now, this marks the beginning of the Holocene era. Sheep and goats were domesticated. Primitive agriculture was beginning, beginning, and religion was becoming more advanced. Life was still tough, but for the first time, our species could at least drink a beer, eat some cheese, and even have a pet cat. Look at how long it took to get to this point. Again, we started our story 300,000 years ago. So now, from the point we began, we are, what is that, 292,000 years in, we finally reached the point where you get your beer, your cheese, and your pet cat. Next stop is 3,000 years BC, at the beginning of the Bronze Age. Huge technological advances have been made. Remember, for almost half of history, we have covered, uh, the half of the history we have covered, people didn't have clothes. In about two-thirds of the time, mankind was homeless. But in this age, we have writing, trade, city-states, law, abundant pottery, wine, and better food. Unfortunately, this came with widespread slavery, large armed conflicts on a regular basis, and yes, still, that pesky murdering thing. But by 1400 BC, large-scale empires exist with reasonably productive agriculture and extensive trade. Religion has massively increased in complexity and skyrocketed in debauchery. Temples across the world often commit human sacrifice, sometimes even throwing infants into fires. Heinous acts of worship include bestiality, all sorts of temple prostitution, genital mutilation, and more. Some cultures seek to follow some semblance of the natural law and to pursue reason, such as the Greeks. Good job, Greeks. But, unfortunately, they too are vexed with slavery, societally sanctioned pedophilia, and other disgusting practices. Though, note, Plato argued against some of those things, and I think Aristotle did too. Needless to say, sanitation in cities is virtually non-existent, except for the most wealthy, and you and your family would be lucky to live in a two-room house of 200 square feet. Cities were violent and dangerous places. Organized police did not exist. Most of the problems in the other ages persist, but they have improved. This time seems ancient to us, but it's in the last 1.1% of our human history. What I have described is actually the very recent past. It is at this point that the exodus from Egypt occurs. After thousands of seemingly godless years, things are beginning to change. 
God gives the Hebrew people a law to follow that will protect them from falling into the evils that all of the other nations are actively participating in. Moses prophesies that another prophet, greater than he, will one day come. He leads the people out of slavery, through the wilderness, against fierce opponents, and delivers them to the promised land, where he then dies before entering. What follows is the story of the nation of Israel and Judah, who do a terrible job of keeping that aforementioned law. All the while, prophets begin to see more clearly the outline of a coming Messiah. When he comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the earth will become prosperous, peace will blanket the land, and mysteries hidden from the creation of the world will be revealed. Roughly 2,000 years ago, the Romans were the dominant power in this section of the globe. Still, by our standards, they were horribly primitive and poor. In fact, their GDP per capita, at their height, was equal to around $850 per year in the richest areas of the empire that were heavily reliant on extracting forced labor from a vast slave population. Putting aside that fact, um, they had much less exciting things to buy with those, you know, 850 equivalent dollars. And this level of poverty puts them below 188 of 190 nations today. They're right behind the wealth of those in the current Democratic Republic of Congo, and only wealthier than the modern citizens of Burundi and the Central African Republic. As you can see, 298,000 years have passed, and not that much has changed. But what happens in the next 2,000 years is nothing short of supernatural. And here is the quickest rundown of Western history that you may ever read. Jesus is born. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he, like Moses, brings about a new exodus. But this time, not from the slave masters, but from the masters of sin and death. He initiates a new kingdom on earth and, like Moses, leaves the scene. Before he goes, he heals the sick, the blind. He casts out demons. He makes water into wine. He miraculously makes bread and fish abundant to the 5,000 and the 4,000. And he even raises the dead. He teaches that those who will follow him will do even greater things. And he tells us that he is like a seed and the kingdom that he establishes will grow into a great tree. He initiates means of grace, such as the Eucharist, to remain present to us and to feed us with his very life. And this sacramental Christification of the new kingdom, in a similar way, uh, this is a sacramental Christification of his new kingdom, in a similar way that minerals can petrify a buried tree. This burgeoning kingdom goes on to Christify the world, becoming light and salt to the nations. In short order, the invincible kingdom that killed Jesus is defeated without a single battle. It starts spreading the message of Christ's kingdom instead of persecuting it. The Roman Empire then falls, but the church does not. It ends slavery in the Western world, condemns pedophilia, grants property rights, establishes just war criteria, mobilizes troops to protect against constant Muslim invasion, slave trading, and raids. The church advances on all academic fronts, from math to biology, theology to chemistry and astronomy. 
It founds the university system, sends missionaries to distant lands, builds the most beautiful structures in all of time, and invents the scientific method. Modernity is birthed out of Christendom, industrializes, spreads to new and unknown continents. The human population explodes, as does wealth, peace, and happiness. And now we have arrived at today. And every place that came from Christendom, or in other words, was a result of Christification from the sacramental work of the Messianic kingdom established by Jesus, is living in what would seem to any human from any other age to be either completely extraterrestrial or supernatural. Those nations that trade with us or copy our way of life become wealthy too. The natural poverty, starvation, disease, and misery that persists today is found only where Christendom did not yet extend its reach. So, let me ask, has the Messianic age been a disappointment? I think not. So, there you go. A little reflection on how good we have it and what a rapid change there was to the normal state of mankind after Jesus' coming and after the church uh, began to grow. It happened in a more amazing way than anybody would think. We literally learned of new forces of nature. We, we understand what the atom is. We've looked millions of, of years into the past with telescopes by looking at distant areas where light has been traveling for millions of years. We, we understand the genesis of the Big Bang. I, like, wow. Think about explaining electricity to people at any other point in human history. Think about the food that you eat, the clothes that you wear, the car that you drive, the, the supercomputer that sits in your pocket. All of this is unimaginable. Think about the, the blind who see. Think about the deaf who hear with, I don't know, cochlear implants. Think about all of the medical advances, the people who are healed, who are present, prevented from death. When Jesus said that you will do even greater things than I, what Jesus, he, he satiated people's, people's hunger. Well, look what we've done. Look what John Deere has done. <laughs> we have fed people in abundance in incredible ways, like Jesus did. That's a result of the Messiah coming. Well, Jesus taught people. We have all of the knowledge of the entire world available to almost everybody on every continent right now. Uh, yeah, we, we're te- we can teach people like Jesus can. Right now, people from, I think, 15, 20 different countries are hearing my voice as I speak of Jesus. That's incredible. So all the things that Jesus did are being done by his kingdom. And there's no need to over-spiritualize this. The problem is that we've under-enchanted the world. We've forgotten how incredible the natural universe is. As I like to say, the universe is Catholic. So the things that we do in it, um, in line with Christianity our Christian things, our spiritual things. All right, that's a long enough diatribe, I think. I hope you enjoyed that one. Um, If you have any questions, let me know. As you may have noticed, I know less about (laughs) how to defend Christianity specifically than either God or 
the Catholic Church, but I hope it's still I hope it's still helpful. I, I think we hit some some good points this time. Um, I already recommended sharing this episode, so I guess I have nothing to say except I'll see you for the next episode.